I'm Clint Emerson, and welcome to season two of Can You Survive This Podcast, where the interview is just as dangerous as the scenarios I put my guests through. From hostage situations to natural disasters, carjackings, active shooters, and more, if you're looking for the skills necessary to survive these situations, then this is the show for you. Thank you for uh, tuning in to another episode of Can You Survive This Podcast, where the uh, interviews are just as dangerous uh, as the scenarios I put my victims through. Today, we have an author and journalist who was awarded the Orwell Prize for books in 2012. He is the author of First Casualty, the untold story of the CIA mission to avenge 9-11, I want to welcome Toby Harden to the show. How are you doing, Toby? Hey, Clint. I'm doing well. Thank you very much for having me on. Yeah, good. Glad you're here. I'm excited Um, and a little bit nervous. (laughs) Yeah, you shouldn't be. (laughs) Never like being Uh, described as a victim, but you know. Yeah, it's all right. You'll be okay. They, uh, everyone tends to survive. That's that's the other thing. We had we had some listeners point out that it's always answer B, and since then. Uh, the producers have now started switching that it's not always B anymore. So okay. Good for those, Good those that were really paying attention, the right answer used to be B all the time, but not anymore. So you can't use that to your advantage anymore. Um, okay. Just like any of our shows, we'll, uh, we'll start off with a rapid fire and uh, get the ball going. So are you ready? Sure. All right, here we go. CIA or MI6? CIA. CIA. Oh. FBI or MI5? MI5. <laughs> this is going to be interesting. Okay, the IRA or AQ? IRA. Army or Navy? <laughs> we have that game coming up here in America. Navy. Navy. I figured you'd pick that, or at least I was hoping you. Okay. Uh, books or articles? Books. To be an author or to be a journalist? Author. Yeah, could split hairs with that one, but yeah. Okay, porridge or oatmeal? (laughs) (laughs) Porridge. (laughs) Yeah, I figure a little bit. Most dangerous assignment? Place, date. Which was your most dangerous? Uh, Fallujah, uh, November 2004. All right, we'll come back to that one. Uh, Your favorite piece of gear? You travel in the globe. Uh, a 2B pencil. No shit. 2B pencil. All right. We're going to circle back up to the top. CIA versus the MI6. You pick CIA. Why is that? Because I know a lot of those guys. I MI6 is, is small. It's kind of like British society. It's kind of class ridden. It's like the kind of the Oxford Don type kind of aura. Uh, I think they leech off the cia a lot like the british government does off the american government while pretending or kind of trying to suggest that they're sort of superior and cleverer because there was an empire and they did stuff in malaya and northern ireland um whereas i feel the cia you know with their paramilitaries and with their case officers they get their hands dirtier and you know Afghanistan 2001 is a classic example. MI6 
officers were in there, but it was the it was the CIA that did the business. Yeah, that's surprising. So what you're saying is not all the MI6 folks are James Bond? Or I mean, I thought they were all just trained killing assassins. <laughs> <laughs> no, very few of them. I mean, often I mean there are often there are a lot less kind of clandestine. I mean, I remember going to India two or three years ago and hanging out at the Foreign Correspondents Club with a bunch of journalists. And they're like, oh, that guy over there, yeah, he's the MI6 guy. <laughs> and, oh, wow. And I guess the journalist world was part of his kind of patch. You know, he was kind of working it and you yeah. know, he didn't introduce himself as that, but it was pretty obvious who he was. And I thought that was kind of interesting. You wouldn't see that with the agency. Yeah, that is interesting. Do you think uh, MI6, I mean, they're just case officers, just like the CIA. I mean, yeah. they're, they're doing, they're not doing the sexy stuff that we see in James Bond movies. They're doing exactly what case officers do. And that is go out meet with sources, collect information and write cables, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And they, and they, in terms of like war fighting, they don't have a paramilitary wing. They, they use UK special forces. Uh, yeah. They don't have their own, like, you know, special activity center or, or ground branch or air branch. Um, and they, they're very small and they have relatively limited resources. And so um, actually Hank Crompton, who was the CTC counterterrorism center, special operations director in 2001 who ran the war he has some uh he has some choice words about the brits and how basically they have a course on how to get stuff from the americans you know and uh, <laughs> so, yeah uh, i think the israelis are going through that same course <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah it's probably a year-long course for them yeah <laughs> how do we just take stuff from yeah, and the French. I mean, the French and the Israelis. It's always surprised me. We're we're their biggest ally, but yet they just steal our shit and sell it all day long. Right. Um, I mean, I've heard that every every CI officer that transits in France, you know, has a luggage turned upside down, and you know, and they're supposed to be allies, you know. Right. It's it's. I, I still don't get it. Like we we go to great lengths to do things for our our partners and our allies, but they. When it comes to intelligence, they fuck us over every time. I, yeah. I, I do not understand, but uh, who knows? You never know what's going on behind the curtain. So, um, okay, FBI versus MI5. You got MI5 on that one. Yeah, I guess that's because I feel like the FBI are kind of cops. And uh, I guess I have spent a lot of time with CIA officers who feel bruised about um, the arguments over kind of 9-11 and connecting the dots. And I feel that the FBI kind of grabbed that narrative, uh, controlled that narrative kind of to the detriment of, of, of the CIA. Yeah. Um, and I also, I mean, I have known uh, MI5 officers uh, and they really did get their hands dirty uh, in Northern Ireland, you know? And they did yeah. the business on the ground and worked the sources and went into very dangerous uh, situations. And uh, so, yeah, I have respect for them. Plus, I'm a dual national. So I'm British born, as you can tell from the accent, but yep. an American citizen since 2009. So, you know, I can't be 100% American all the time. So I think, if you know, <laughs> CIA and MI5, you know, yeah. I'll just kind of mix it up a bit. No, that's a good split. And I, 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 what I've heard, you know, MI five, they don't fuck around when it comes to protecting, you know, the UK. They really don't, and they're they're they get in the fight, 
you know, like you mentioned, on a regular basis. And uh, a lot of times they're equated to the FBI because it's kind of an internal country uh, or federal law enforcement. But I feel like they do a lot of like cool stuff and have a lot of liberty, whereas the FBI is very much, you know, restricted and it's a bureaucracy. I mean, yeah. is that kind of same? I think so. I, f- I feel like MI5 is more intelligence driven than law enforcement driven. And obviously the yeah. FBI is more the latter. So there's there's definitely a kind of a cultural difference there. And I yeah. also feel like MI5 are, are the guys that sort of roll up their sleeves and, and do it on the ground. Whereas MI6 is more, you know, the cravats and the silk ties and the you know, Eton and the public schools and, you know, yeah. the cocktail parties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, these are all prejudices, I guess, you know? Yeah. Well, it's, you know, that's the cool part is you get other, this rapid fire piece is all about just getting those kinds of opinions from people who've been around it. Um, IRA and AQ, you picked the IRA. Why'd you do that? Well, I mean, Al-Qaeda are pure evil. Um, The IRA, um, you know, it was guerrilla. They were a guerrilla army. Certainly they did some bad things, um, but they were militarily, um, I mean, I wrote a book about South Armagh, which was their sort of heartland. And yeah. so it was, it was, a, you know, it was almost hundred percent Catholic. So there was the sectarian elements of, you know, killing Protestants because they were Protestant and, and vice versa that you ha- had in the rest of Northern Ireland didn't happen so much in, in South Armagh. It was kind of a, you know, they had sniper, they had a sniper team with a, you know, 50 caliber rifle and they used to kill soldiers, um, you know, up to a thousand yards, often at much at shorter distances. And they, um, they had, you know, they had used military tactics um, and they, there was a lot of respect for them in certainly in South Armagh as a sort of a guerrilla force fighting an army of occupation from the, from the British army. Yeah. And so, you know, and they, they, you know, they did some really bad things. You know, and a, a guy, I, you know, I came to count as a friend, Eamon Collins. You know, who was had tested, he'd, he'd kind of he'd he'd gone against them and testified against them in court and stuff. And he was, you know, he was murdered in I think 1998 or maybe ninety nine. You know, with like screwdrivers and standing knives, and it was freaking brutal. So these people have done some terrible, terrible things. But generally speaking, uh, despite a lot of um, kind of urban legends or rural legends, you know, they didn't torture people. Uh, They tended to kill, uh, you know, go for legitimate targets, certainly in South Armagh. And, uh, you know, Al-Qaeda killing 3,000 people on 9-11, you know, flying planes into buildings and, you know, I think that the two, you can't quite compare the the two things in terms of sort of evil and atrocities. Yeah. No, I think that's a great point because AQ just is senseless and just murder straight up and where IRA just had a mission. Right. And in how they viewed things as far as, you know, whether it was occupation and, you know, still had that religion piece, though, that's kind of a common denominator that's interesting. But they're also smarter. That's why they were a respected adversary, right? I mean, they're just a smarter yeah. group of guys, you know, pulling off military operations, you know, yeah. with whatever they could get their hands on. 
Yeah, I mean, like Eamon Collins, who I mentioned, uh, he was a fascinating person because he sort of turned against them, but he kind of still loved them in a way. And I think he felt like disrespected. They hadn't promoted him enough. And he was a very clever guy, but he was kind of nerdy. But so he, he would be you know, describing how awful they were and, you know, and, and how they had set back the cause, cause of Irish unity. And then he'd immediately flip and he'd start talking about them and say, like, these were, you know, uh, worthy opponents of the SAS. And if, if so-and-so had been, you know, born in Britain, then he would have been an SAS colonel and stuff. So it was kind of, it was kind of interesting. Hmm. Yeah, that is interesting. <laughs> um, the next one was Army versus Navy. You picked Navy. I figured you would. I mean, you had to think about it for a second, but you're a I Navy did. man yourself. Exactly. So, so I'm fourth generation military. Yeah. So, my, so I was in the Navy. My father was in the Navy. His father was in the Army. And his father, my great-grandfather, was in the Army. And at that point, we're going back to the 1880s. Um, I guess the reason I hesitated was because... Um, I actually think if I kind of had my time again, the army would have been a better fit for me. Um, mm. I, mean, I joined the Navy because of my father, I guess. Um, and I grew up in Ma- Manchester, Northwest of England, uh, far away from the sea. So I didn't have kind of that kind of nautical thing in my blood other than my father. And in that period, it was just after the Falklands War, which is 82. So I joined in 1985. I tried very hard to get involved in the Gulf War, but they felt that I could just remain in Scotland in a shore billet, and so uh, I didn't. Yeah. I didn't see so I didn't see any action. I mean, I did as a journalist, um, that, and that's one of the reasons why you know I, you know, resigned from the Navy in 1994. Um, but if I'd been in the army, I would have almost certainly done Northern Ireland. There would have been operations in Bosnia, and I feel like it would have been perhaps. Uh, a better fit. Although I love, I love my time in the Navy and, uh, uh, but that, that was, that was why there was the hesitation. And plus I've spent a lot, <laughs> a lot more time with, you know, army, um, Marines, ground forces, yeah, the, yeah. that than um, than, uh, than the Navy, you know, in the past. Wow. Hard, hard to believe. So since I left the Navy, what's that like 28 years? Yeah. Yeah. 27 years. Wow. Um, Books versus articles. You pick books. You just like book projects. Or? Definitely books. A book yeah. is forever. You know, a book is history. It's never going to go away. I mean, I've done some good journalism, but you know, there's this phrase in Britain. It's like the fish and chip wrapping the next morning. Uh, yeah. You know, or lining the hamster cage. And I do feel that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> you know, articles. Now, listen, there are different types of articles. You know, there's different difference between like a new yorker article which is sort of more work goes into those in some books and yeah. the sort of you know a new story you do for mail online in 25 minutes um but you know i feel like articles are ephemeral whereas books are history they're forever uh they're much, you know there's much more room for kind of nuance to let things let's let things breathe you have so many decisions to make about narrative and structure um that actually of all the quick fire questions that was the easiest question of all to answer yeah you're quick on that one and i kind of look at the same i've done nothing like you because i'm not a journalist i'm a retired seal but i would say you know for me books it the project in itself is what i like it's you know you're you're 
you're you're creating a product where yeah. I feel like an article is more of a service, you know? Yeah, that's a good yeah. way of putting it. And so the book is like, yeah, like you said, it's out there, it's tangible, it's real, you can hold it in your hand or yeah, you know, and and in the process of putting a book together is just got more on the back end has more of a satisfaction than that of, of an article. Right. Yeah. I mean, a book is like immerse, it's an immersive experience. Yeah. You, you know, you, you know, you just, yeah, you immerse yourself in the subject, you live it, you know, you, I mean, I dream about the p people in, in books. Like, you know, I've dreamt about, you know, my expand when I did, um, dead men risen, I dreamt about some of the guys that were killed because I was, I was getting to know them and thinking about them all the time. And, um, an article's just much more sort of surface. Yeah, I'm with you. More with Toby Harden after the break. Then, so it pretty much answers the why to author versus journalist. But I thought maybe you'd pick journalists just because it the action side of it it gets yeah. you out there. Yeah. So it's interesting. I don't especially like being described as a journalist these days. Um, I don't, <laughs> I don't quite know why. Well, I mean, maybe I yeah, could yeah. have some, some, some guesses, but it's your foundation, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I love, you know, I guess, yeah, I'm going to be talking in the past tense, you know, but I, I loved being a, a journalist. I love yeah. being a foreign correspondent. I love getting, getting out there. Um, you know, you know, finding stuff out. I love being a, a being part of things, being witness to things. Like I mentioned, Fallujah. You know, just like being there for that is just like an incredible um, experience. Yeah. Um, but you know, journalists. You know, you're working for editors who have who have agendas and newspapers who have agendas, um, and it's you know every person, every person you quote. There's a reason why that they're quoted, not somebody else. There's a reason why you ch chose choose that quotation. I'm, I guess I'm talking now particularly about sort of political journalism, where you're kind of shaping narratives. Yeah. And I'm kind of uncomfortable with that, and I became increasingly uncomfortable with it, where it's like top down. And particularly when I was a foreign correspondent covering U.S. politics, I remember I had a colleague who just said to me, "Toby, you always have to remember the best ideas." come from London <laughs> and he was being sarcastic, but it was true. And yeah. if some senior executive in London, you know, had, you know, I don't know, heard something on Sky News or the BBC or whatever, and that, that was, that was their theory about, you know, what was happening at the White House, I'd have to push either, towards, well, kind of right to order, but obviously I would try and shift it in other directions. And the best way of dealing with a bad idea is to have a better one. But, you know, there's that kind of, <laughs> there's that process, you know, in journalism, which I felt was kind of dirty. Whereas, um, you know, as an author, you're, you've got so much more control yourself. And right. sure, you know, there's a commercial element like type, you know, the title and the jacket and, and ed editors. Yeah. And editors might say, well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't talk about that or I wouldn't, you know, and yet, but you have, you know, I don't know, often as a journalist, even the, you know, unless it's a pure war reporting where, you know, yeah, you're in Sada City in 2004 and with a bunch of snipers and, you know, that's very pure because you just, you just write it and they publish it. Um, but when you, particularly when you get into politics, you know, kind of sometimes, you know, less than 50% of it can be yours. And, and, you know, yeah, I didn't like that. 
Yeah, I'm with you. That's the bullshit behind the media. And, you know, I've got, I've always mentioned in other interviews, the the kind of the list of occupations I really don't like, you know, it's anybody has anything to do with taxes, <laughs> anybody <laughs> has any, anything to lawyers, you know, and the media definitely is, comes up to the top of the list now, uh, along with politicians. And I feel like the extreme right and the extreme left uh, has been driven to that point because of the media, right? Mm. I mean, it's these politicians are one upping each other with these extreme with these extreme ideas and and policies on both sides, but it's the reporting behind it has kind of pushed them into those corners. I feel like you know, I wish the yeah. news, I wish the news would go back to the fictional acronym that people used to think news stood for, and that's. Notable events, weather, and sports, right? <laughs> I haven't heard that. That's good. <laughs> and it's, I find it interesting that it's nothing like that. You turn on the TV or you read an article, it's not notable events, weather, and sports. It's fucking drama and yeah. bullshit. And, yeah. uh, you know, I always have to remind people, man, you watch the news or you have it playing in the background on a regular basis. Uh, beware. I mean, 75% of it's bullshit. And, uh, you, and they, but they make you believe it's fact. It's unfortunate. Yeah, I mean, it's it's sad because this wasn't how, you know, I started in journalism in 94, working for the Telegraph on the news side. And, you know, we had, I don't know, 25 or so news reporters. Um, yeah, some of them were kind of left-wing. Some yeah. weren't. Most you didn't really know. But there were people, you know, and I include myself in this, who just believed in being being truthful and, and being fair and being straight. Yeah. And, and, we, and we kind of like did not want to be affected by any agendas, including like the editorial agenda of our own paper. Whereas now I feel, and you know, it's a whole other discussion, but journalists yeah. have felt the need to, or they've been pushed into taking sides and being on a side. And yeah, you, sh you know, if you're a reporter, you, you shouldn't be on the side. You should be on the side of the reader, mm -hmm. but that's it. And so, right. yeah, it's all become very distorted. Yeah, that's a great point. Be on the side of the reader or whoever's watching. Not yeah. Yeah, I think that's a that should be a, a a new a new news network should pop up and that be their number one mission because none of them are doing that right now. Um, and then of course I ended it with porridge versus oatmeal because I was sitting with some SAS SBS dudes and every morning they're like porridge porridge and I'm like isn't porridge just oatmeal? And they're like yeah. I was like, okay, I'm just making sure I'm not missing anything here. <laughs> you know, the only time I ever heard porridge in the United States is in, uh, you know, children's stories about the fucking bears coming in the <laughs> place and someone's eating my, or no, is it the big bad wolf? Big bad wolf. Yeah. I big think it might've been the three bears. I don't know. I know what you mean. <laughs> yeah. yeah the porridge, was, yeah. porridge. You always use yeah. the word porridge and, yeah. you know, and, and then you got these grown men with tattoos and all ripped up using the word porridge. And I was like, isn't that fucking oatmeal? It's just oatmeal, right? And they're like, well, yeah, yeah, it's porridge. I'm like, okay, just making sure. You picked porridge because it's just the well, Brit's way of saying oatmeal. Yeah, exactly. And it's funny because as a kid, <laughs> so, um, you know, I feel very American. You know, I've lived here since 99, apart from two, nearly three years uh, from like 2004 to 2006, where I was mostly in the Middle East, but I had a, close to a year in, in London. Um, you know, I've been citizen since 2009. And so I feel on most things, I'm kind of American, you know, kids are American yeah. and, you know, this is, yeah, I, you know, I have, you know, my, my mother and siblings live in the, in the UK, but I, I have very few connections there really. And f increasingly feel like a, 
you know, tourists when I go back. But, you know, I grew up there <laughs> and I drink tea rather than coffee. Yeah, um, yeah. And, you know, this British, you know, British humor I, I like and porridge. So when I was a kid, my mum used to make porridge before school and I used to hate it, you know. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. We, and, um, but we could put golden syrup on it. And so I grew to sort of tolerate it. Um, and there was another version. There was a version which was where you just added water and it was from a packet and it was called Ready Breck. Ah. And so, and, and so, so those you know when I hear the word porridge, it just takes me back to my childhood, childhood. and yeah. my mom, and and so now I do kind of like porridge and or oatmeal, yeah. you know. So, uh, uh, yeah, definitely porridge. Yeah, so, yeah, steel oats, steel cut oats, or so. You know, it's all become some kind of healthy trend thing too. Well, um, I can't oats. I can't work out what they are. So the <laughs> yeah, other is day, it the same or not? I don't know. Well, so the other day. Um, there's a thing called parking, which is the north of England. It's like a ginger, it's a cross between gingerbread and cake. Mm. And so there's, um, we have bonfire night on November the 5th. And so there are some British traditions. I, so I usually have a bonfire party and like try and have a big fire in the yard and not have the fire brigade called. And we have fireworks yeah. and stuff. And I make parking. <laughs> and there's a particular type of oats. And I can't for the life of me, this, you know, I go into giant supermarket and there's freaking you know, 15 different types of oats, but they're not the oats that the recipe says I need for parking. So anyway, <laughs> so I end up buying some kind of oats and then trying to grind them myself. Yeah. And anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Parking. I'm gonna, how do you spell? How do you spell parking? I'm going to have to check that out. P like parking without, without the G. Oh, okay. Like parking a car. Yeah. I gotcha. And then golden syrup. Is that honey or is that like maple syrup? What's golden syrup? Golden syrup is, it's like a brat. So it's Tate and Lyle, I think, make it. It's kind of like honey, but it tastes kind of less sweet. I don't know. I mean, does it, I don't know how does to it, describe it. Does it come from bees or? I think so. I think, I think there's honey in it, but maybe there's a bit of molasses or something. Because oh, okay. it just, it tastes a little le less sweet. It's pretty nice. Huh. Golden syrup. I heard of golden rain. Golden syrup is a new one. <laughs> All right. Um, I digress. Uh, okay. So then we talked about most dangerous assignment, of course, Fallujah, right? I mean, tell us about your experience there. Yeah, I think so. I mean, that whole 2004 period, um, you know, was pretty dangerous. Um, I mean, actually, before that, I mean, the, the very close run thing would be uh, Sada City also in 2004, because I remember being on a U.S. Army patrol, and we went to a police station, and it was you know end up getting surrounded. And then there were soldiers put on the roof, and then and then we had to exit the, the police station. And um, you know, I saw there were bullets you know kicking up the dust in front of my feet. And wow. then and then we had this wild drive back because the um, I guess the Mahdi army, the you know Shia militia, had put up barricade burning barricades in the roads. We were like doing. U-turns, I was in a Humvee and there was RPGs going across. So that was pretty dangerous. Um, but Fallujah in 2004, I mean, we were, you know, it was the biggest, it was built and I think it was the sort of the biggest US military battle since Vietnam. The entire city was kind of empty. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the night before there was these just gunships just like blasting the place, you know. And, um, you know, it was pretty, it was pretty scary. I mean, I, I, you know, we were 
all embedded journalists. We were at Camp Fallujah for a week or so before. And I remember, you know, I remember being in the chow hall with all these Marines. So I was with a first infantry division. So it's task force two, two, and it ended up actually being with the same platoon as David Bellavere, who was awarded the medal of honor. Um, and yeah, I mean, in that chow hall, I remember listening to these like very young Marines and, you know, they were just like, just waiting to go in and they knew that, you know, quite a few of them were going to die. And it was yeah. just like, and, he, and it was, you know, and I remember a photographer taking a picture of the journalist, you know, oh, group photo. And then somebody said, said to him, are you just doing that? Because, you know, when one of us gets killed, you can sell the, the you know, sell the photos of the newspaper. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and he was like, yeah, well, you know, so. Yeah, yeah why not? We're, gonna, we're all here to um, make a buck. <laughs> right. So it was kind of dark. And, yeah. you know, and I just, you know, I mean, I remember, uh, I mean, we were, as journalists, I mean, it's kind of interesting. We've just been talking about journalism, how trusted we were. And we were in on all the planning. Now, obviously, our lives were at stake as well. So it wasn't in our interest to start, you know, kind of leaking stuff um but i remember the night before we went in and uh you know i was in this briefing room in camp fallujah and i remember thinking god damn i wish i had my camera with me because i just looked at the guys over them you know pointing at the map and you know just how it looked like a scene from a a, a movie yeah and the three guys i was looking at uh were Captain Sean Sims, who was the company commander of the company that I ended up transfer. I went from one company to the other. Uh, so Captain Sean Sims, um, and there was his XO was uh, Lieutenant Edward Iwan, I think, I-W-A-N. Mm -hmm. And then the command sergeant major of the battalion was a guy called Steve Falkenberg. Mm -hmm. And I remember looking at those guys and like, they just like, like from central casting, you know, they look, they just looked the part, you know, it was, it was super serious. Like this was, this was no kind of peacekeeping operation. This was no kind of walk in the park or training exercise. I just, I'd never uh, experienced something that just kind of felt so real. And those three guys were all killed, you know, in the next few days. Wow. And it was just like, Holy shit. I can't believe that I'm, I'm, I'm part of this. And, um, you know, uh, Command Sergeant Major Falkenberg was killed like on the breach. I think he, he just a bullet just hit him just below the helmet in the head and dead. And I remember the word going around like, have you heard like Command Sergeant Major's dead? And like, and I remember a young soldier just saying, hey, I don't want to hear about that now. You know, it's just like, yeah, I heard the rumor, but like, let's yeah. just focus. And, um, and then, uh, Iwan was, was, Iwan took, uh, you know, he was a young, you know, he was a lieutenant, you know, he was a great guy. He just single, he'd been touring around Australia, but, you know, recent, you know, recent months before going to Iraq and he took him, he was hit by an RPG and they operated on him with the RPG still embedded, I think in his stomach. Um, and he, and he died on the operating table. He had almost no chance, but just, you know, damn terrible. And, yeah. uh, and, you know, I remember, uh, Sean Sims, Captain Sims, 
you know, he'd lost his, he'd lost his XO and he, you know, and I remember him like, you know, it's sort of unshaven, you know, grimy sort of face, you know, sweat streaked and, and, you know, he'd been, you know, he'd been fighting for days, clearing houses and he'd lost his XO and, you know, and I, I transferred from another company into his company uh, and he's like, yeah, welcome. You know, this is, you know, good to have you on board. And I don't know, 30 minutes later, it, you know, he came over the net, like, you know, the CEO's dead and people were like, what, what are you talking about? And, um, and I remember there was um, a sergeant who was uh, in the squad that I was with. So I think it was, it was Bellavere was a staff sergeant and then a, and a guy called Colin Fitz. And I remember him just doing a talk to the rest of the squad. And he's like, listen, CO's fucking dead, you know, and he's and he's dead because he went into a house, you know, without clearing, you know, that had been, you know, without clearing it because he thought it had already been cleared. And, you know, he's dead and we're alive and we're going to fucking stay alive. And I was like, I, you know, again, it was like being on a movie set. And it was like, this was really real. You could see it in everybody's faces. Um, and so that whole period, I mean, there were buildings rigged with IDs. There were, you know, kind of insurgents amped up like you know Bellavere went into a house with guys jumping out of wardrobes and guys you'd shoot that would just keep going and just those whole few days uh I just remember thinking like you know I, I don't know this just could be it just could be lights out at, at, at any moment here right. and so I feel that that was the most uh you know that was the most kind of dangerous assignment I had yeah, it sounds like it. I mean, Fallujah and that early 2000s, I did the initial push into Iraq and that was like true combat. I tell people, you know, not a lot of SEAL teams or special operations guys get to witness or be a part of like moving in and rolling in through a city. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. not it's not typical of special operations, you know. You're pushing through, you're sleeping in your vehicles, you're sleeping under them. It's before any bases were established. Uh, there was no forward operating bases. There was nothing. It's just yeah. you, your guys. Uh, we had Humvees with plastic doors, you know, zero yeah. armor, armor, and we filled them up with ammo, MREs, water, and fuel. There was barely any room to sit and... Uh, got on highway one in Kuwait and drove North, like on the highway. And that's, uh, you know, that was all Marine run all the way into, uh, all the way up to Baghdad. Um, but it's my point being is it's an, it's, it, it's an unfortunate, but amazing experience, right? I mean, yeah. combat is unfortunate, but when you're a seal or any soldier, the pinnacle of your career is war, <laughs> you yeah. know, you don't go in, <laughs> to train for 20 years you go in so that you can pull the trigger and hopefully do something for the greater good and uh it's amazing when i talk to journalists who've been there uh from y'all's point of view especially yours the first thing you did was you show, you highlighted men you highlighted who they are and that now they're dead and i think that's great and i thank you for sharing that because their families want their names to continue on forever as well yeah um so Thanks for that. Sure. Um, no, I mean, it was just, I remember, you know, we were mostly in Bradley's and, you know, sometimes we'd be there for hours, kind of yeah. in the dark, like, you know, pissing in water bottles and stuff. And then right. just all the, 
the conversations. You know, the <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> which were just great, you know? Yeah. And that, you know, they were just so, fu- they were just so funny. Yeah. Uh, and everybody's really tired and, you know, people are kind of a little bit scared and uh, they're sort of, you know, hyped up as adrenaline and, um, you know, let's face it, everybody knows that they might die, you know, that day. Yeah. And, and, and so, uh, you know, which in a way is kind of like life affirming. Um, but, uh, and then the, you know, then the kind of the rear door would kind of like creak and, and then all of a sudden the light and then you'd like spill out. Um, <laughs> yeah. And it was, just, you know, it was, yeah, it was, it was, it was an incredible experience. More with author and journalist Tony Harden after the break. It's no joke, man. Uh, it's uh, that dark humor thing, I think, is so important. Um because it, it really becomes a fuel and keeps people moving, even though there's just, you know, these horrific acts going on around you. That dark yeah. humor is what kind of just lightens it up just a little bit so that you can uh, take that next step or move on another day. Um, and it resides in all of us. I know uh, SEAL teams, we're, we're, we're about as dark as they come when it comes to that shit. So, <laughs> um, yeah, thanks for sharing that, man. Um and then, uh, yeah, I asked you your your favorite, you know, piece of gear. And you, uh, was it the number two pencil you said? Two, two B pencil. The two B so pencil. This, it's like a soft. I don't know why it's like a soft pencil. It's easy to erase. Um, yeah. I use them to like uh, highlight things in books. Uh, you know, I remember one some of the first journalism I did with was theater reviews. And I would like take these notes and pencils. And I remember a lady in front of me just turning around because the pencil was making a noise. And so, I don't know. I always feel like, um, I don't know. I have to have, you know, yeah. I mean, I've got a pile of them just sort of, you know, in front of me. And it's just the thing that I, it's like kind of like a, a, a thing that I always have to have. And if I don't have a 2B pencil with me, um, I feel like I kind of not properly equipped. So, you know, it's kind of a, a yeah. simple, a simple thing. I get it. My grandfather um, built custom homes here in the Dallas area, and uh, I remember being a kid, he always had a carpenter's pencil, you know, tucked up on his ear. Yes, yeah. You know, it was always on his ear, and he, but he would always also roam around going, where the hell is my goddamn pencil? <laughs> but it was always on his ear, you know, he always right, had yeah. it. He just, didn't, he just didn't always remember it. Um, yeah. I think also uh, it comes from my, I think he comes from my dad as well. You know, my dad... Uh, you know, he was in the Navy, but he became an architect and, uh, I don't know, he was kind of into pencils, you know, and he had <laughs> yeah. you know, three, the hard ones, the four H ones and the two B ones and, and even softer ones, the three B, four B, which are kind of like almost like yeah. charcoal for, for sketching. But anyway, two B pencil. Right. No, I think, yeah, I'm the same way when it comes to like pens and, and notebooks, like I'll always, if there's a notebook, I don't know what it is, like moleskin or, yeah. you know, the way the pages are or something, I'll buy it, even though I got a hundred sitting at home that are blank, you know, it's right. like note, notebooks, pens. I like making lists and organizing my thoughts. Yeah. And, um, and of course a pencil, John Wick proved, you know, you can kill three dudes with a pencil anytime you <laughs> That's want. That's true. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're a great defense weapon as well. Um, or offensive weapon if you choose to, uh, all right, so now let's dig in a little bit with um, with you. You know, going back a little bit, like writing obituaries. Did you ever write an obituary for anybody that was popular or famous? Well, so that's 
so theatre reviews and obituaries, that's how I got into journalism. And yeah. so so I used to write them uh, for like basically admirals or famous na- naval people. Oh, okay. Um, and so the first one I wrote was for a, a guy called Admiral Richard, Sir Richard Fitch, uh, who'd been the second sea lord. So the chief of naval personnel, it's a great title, the chief of naval personnel. I love that, um, sea lord. I know. That, yeah, I know. that sounds so yeah. much better. <laughs> I know. Um, and so actually I was working in this in the second sea lord's office in the Ministry of Defense. I was a sort of like fl- flag lieutenant, like an aide de camp, you know, kind yeah. of carrier. And, you know, which was interesting, but, you know, it was also, you know, you don't like carrying people's bags and yeah, you know, yeah. being responsible when they, you know, have the wrong, you know, when their medals have gotten and or they're not in the right uniform or all that kind of stuff. But I did that. And I was thinking about journalism and I'd been doing the theatre reviews. Um, and then uh, Admiral Fitch died. Uh, I mean, he killed himself. Uh, he'd lost a load of, uh, he was like a Lloyd's name. And mm. so he'd lost, he'd lost his, all his savings. And um, I think it was the old car fumes in the, in the garage. And oh, so, yeah. So my boss, the second sea lord, um, was asked to write, uh, you know, the obituary and like a lot of senior officers and particularly that senior officer never did anything for himself. So, you know, I, I you know, it's like, oh, you're interested in writing, you know, Lieutenant Harden, you know, can you have a go? So I, <laughs> <laughs> so I, so I did it and I, you know, and I saw, you know, I saw my opportunity, uh, because the, I wrote it for the independent, um, and their obituaries are signed. Right? Hmm. So a lot of obituaries are on, usually they're unsigned. And uh, so I wrote it and I had access to Admiral Fitch's like, um, you know, personnel records and his like reports and, you hmm. know, and he, he had an interesting life. So I wrote it and uh, I was speaking to the obituaries editor at the independent. And I was like, Oh, just, you know, just one thing, you know, um, I, you know, I know there's a, a by, you know, byline on the obituary, um, and you know, uh, there's a feeling here that it should be the Admiral's name, but I, you know, I, I actually wrote it. So who's, you know, I was, I was being, I was being, <laughs> you know, I knew, I knew the answer I wanted. And she was like, Oh no, the person who wrote it should have their, have their name on it. And so exactly. I remember going in. Yeah. So I went into the Admiral and said, so, you know, sir, I've just like, you know, I've been speaking to them. Here it is. And I've done it. And, um, and he's like, Oh yes, yeah, very good. And I said, you know, just one thing, uh, the um, obituaries editor at the at the Independent says that really the you know the person who wrote it um, should have the have their name on it and so you know <laughs> and it was like, whatever and anyway and I just kind of walked out but anyway my name was on it so it's like my first byline in a national newspaper and Yay. then from that they said you know can you do some more and so I would um, you know I would write but then I would write them before they these guys died so. Um, I'd be writing in a, I'd be writing an obituary about one of them and I'd be phoning him up to talk about another guy. <laughs> <laughs> and they all kind of knew, you know, they're all in their like seventies or eighties and they sort yeah, of all yeah. knew that I was probably writing one on them as well. And uh, it was just fascinating talking to these, you know, these old admirals and, you know, I, I, um, I wrote one God- Godfrey place who uh, had won a Victoria cross, you know, in a midget submarine, you know, in world war two. Oh, wow. Um, and uh, yeah, so and then, of course, some of them didn't die for quite a few years. So I I went on, you know, became a full time journalist, and and one of these admirals would fall off his perch and stuff, and 
you know, I'd have a byline in the independent, you know, because uh, yeah. yeah, they just pull the obituary out. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like too the obituaries for these guys were a little longer here than in the United States. Usually it's like three or four lines at the back of a newspaper or whatever, you know. He is survived by his family and friends, and then that's it. <laughs> no, these were I mean, obituaries are a real crime. I love obituaries. Yeah. Um and in Britain in particular, there's a, you know, like a Times obituary, Telegraph. I mean, the, yeah. the, this is real, an article. It's an article yeah, on the person. Real, yeah. Like, yeah. Really interesting lives. And uh, um, so, cool. yeah, so it was it was fun. And, the, you know, the, you know, I mean, the sad things about obituaries, obviously, you get to know this person. You feel like you're getting to know this person for the first time and they're dead. You know, right. <laughs> you think, oh, I wish I, you know, I would have really liked to, you know, interviewed him. Um but, uh, you know, sometimes they're quirky, yeah. uh, you know, and it'll be somebody who wasn't, you know, who wasn't particularly well known, but did, you know, was kind of eccentric or, you know, had, you know, there was one act of gallantry in their life. Um, so, yeah. uh, you know, they're great. Their obituaries can be great things. Yeah, no, I think it's cool. You can remember that's, I mean, that's how you get remembered. You, hopefully somebody writes a good obituary about you. Um, yeah. And then I need to clarify, too. You said midget submarines. I mean, here in the States, you use the word midget and you get crucified. So let's talk oh, no, about I being canceled. Let's talk. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You'll get that's a small people submarine. It's a small, small, small people. Oh, no, that's even worse. <laughs> <laughs> so a midget submarine is basically a little submarine, right? Yeah. It's like I think these I think these submarines, I think golf replaced. There was only one man. It's kind of like an underwater coffin. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I the seals. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. you call it like a submersible craft, really. And it, I think they, I think he, he went into, I'll have to reread the obituary, but he, he went in, in this um, craft and then had to swim out and attach, you know, mines to the hulls of ships in a, in a harbor. Yeah, that's uh, awesome. That's Norway, old school. Yeah, that's old school frogman stuff, which. Yeah, exactly. The Italians would actually ride, they would straddle a torpedo that they could steer, right? So they would sit on it, two of them, and they would basically ride a torpedo all the way into the harbor, get up next to their target vessel. They had these big, heavy lead boots that would keep them standing on the floor. Then they would move the torpedo underneath the target vessel, kind of put it in place, leave their boots behind, put their fins on and swim away. And then the thing would blow up. And that was, that was like world war one stuff. And then, um, you know, obviously the Frogman evolved, but yeah, the, those, what we have is SDVs, seal delivery vehicles. Mm. And you can cram, you know, three or four dudes in there and be freezing cold and uncomfortable for hours on end. And, uh, to, in order to go from point A to point B undetected, but yeah, that's, uh, but we're not allowed to call them midget submarines. Okay. I, I apologize. <laughs> no, not you. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean. Um, all right. So fast forwarding, um, your most current book, right? So yep. now you have you did a lot. And we could talk for hours about, you know, awards you've won for writing and uh, previous books. But I want to make sure we highlight First Casualty, the untold story of the CIA mission to avenge 9-11. Tell, yeah. tell us about kind of first what 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 provoked the thought uh, to put this together. And then what are the highlights? What are your favorite parts of this book? Yeah, well, it goes right back to 9-11. It's very much, a, you know, that's in the subtitle. It's very much sort of 9-11 book. So I was a reporter, you know, foreign correspondent for the T Daily Telegraph at the time. 
uh, in Washington, D.C. on on 9-11. And like everybody else, you know, was profoundly affected by it. And I think it, you know, led to me eventually becoming an American. And, you know, I was itching to get into Afghanistan, just, you know, like guys in the CIA and the, and the military were. Yeah. And of course, my, you know, bosses back in London, you know, very correctly, I guess, said, no, 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 you need to cover the Bush administration. You kind of got your feet under the table. You have the right contacts and it's an important story. And, you know, and it was a country at war, but, you know, I was kind of frustrated. Um, and uh, I remember, uh, you know, my, the news coverage of Mike Spam being killed and wrote a couple of like news, small news articles about it. Um, and I remember Shannon Spam, his widow, who was also a CIA officer, giving his eulogy at Arlington Cemetery, which was just just twentieth anniversary, just come about to come up, December tenth, two thousand and one, and being mm. really, it was just, you know, very profoundly kind of affected, affecting. And uh, but then the news agenda sort of moved on, and we were sort of into Iraq and you know anthrax attacks and goodness knows what. But I sort oh, of yeah. never forgot, you know, like Mike Spann. It always just stuck in my mind. It was rare for a CIA officer's affiliation to be made public. Author of First Casualty: The Untold Story of the CIA Mission to Avenge 9/11, Toby Harden. After the break. And then I was in Iraq a couple of years later and somebody said, did you ever see the footage of, of that CIA officer who was with Mike Spann, you know, running out of the fort and he just killed all these guys. And, and I hadn't seen it. And I looked, looked it up on YouTube and it was David Tyson, who's sort of one of the central figures in First Casualty. Um, and he was with Mike Spann uh, when these 400 Al-Qaeda guys, you know, staged an uprising killed Mike in the first seconds. And then David, you know, ran towards Mike, killed the four guys on top of him, killed another guy sort of on the way to get to the pile of people on top of Mike. Mm. Um, Realised that Mike was almost certainly dead, grabbed his rifles at AK and, you know, had to sort of, he was in this kill or kill, or kill or be killed situation. Had to, yeah, had yeah. to fight his way out and he chose, you know, he didn't, it was, wasn't really a rational decision. It was like, you know, he chose kill and killed, I don't know how many, but at least a dozen, but probably several dozen um, guys who were flinging themselves at him, headbutting him, because some of them were still had their arms tied, grenades bouncing off his chest and his thigh that weren't exploding, just incredible. Uh, and I remember seeing this footage and this German TV had caught, some of it had caught him sort of running across uh, from the northern to the main events were in the southern half of the fort and he was running, he got out, he managed to get out and um, was running across the northern part to relative safety um, at the sort of headquarters building at the northern end of the fort. And he was clutching an AK and a, and a pistol, a Browning high power. And, and, and then he just like kind of basically bumps into this news crew and you see his staring eyes. And I just remember thinking like, what's that guy gone through? And he doesn't know whether he's going to live another five minutes or five hours or, and he's just seen his comrade killed and he's just killed a lot of people. And, and he's just in another sort of realm. And so I was fascinated by him. And I eventually, you know, years later, I tracked him down in 2013. And it turns out, you know, the way of these things, he was, he was still in the CIA, but he was living in Vienna, Virginia. So like the next yeah. town along from me and, you know, in this sort of DC suburbs. And, um, you know, I met I met him in a P Panera bread, and you know we 
we talked about, um, you know, the, the events of, you know, November 2001. And he couldn't really fully open up because he was still serving the CIA. Um, but the story, the, the idea of sort of what he'd been through uh, and what he was a part of sort of never left me. And I looked into Kalajanki more and more and there was SBS there. And a Navy SEAL, Steph Bass, who was, you know, yeah, on exchange. I was, gonna, I was yeah. actually, yeah, I was going to ask you if if you had a chance to talk to Steph. I did. Yeah, I did. okay. There was AC-130s. There was Abdul Rashid Dostum, this notorious warlord. There was Mullah Fazl, who's back in the Taliban government now, who, like, massacred Hazara Shias in, in the north. Um, you had a big 2,000-pound JDAM dropped on a friendly position. You had, you had Green Berets. I mean, you had everything in this, yeah. in this uh, fort. And so I just thought this is just an incredible sort of story right at the beginning. And it was part of this, you know, Mike was killed, but it was part of a, you know, an early success. Um, and so, you know, the end of 2019, um, I decided to, to, to sort of go for it. And it was a little bit of a leap of faith because I didn't know whether David was going to talk to me. I mean, I kept in touch with him as best I could, but sometimes a couple of years would go by, I wouldn't hear from him. Um, so I got the book deal. And, and then I had two months after that, I had an email from David saying, Hey, I've retired. I'm ready to talk. <laughs> so, oh, nice. um, and then, so I just pieced it, I just pieced it together. And my initial focus was more on the six day battle. But yeah. once I've spoken to David and then I eventually spoke to all six surviving members of the team because Mark Rausenberger, the medic had died on, on a CIA mission um, in the Philippines in 2016. So six surviving guys, one still, Andy still serving. Um, but I spoke to all of them. And so it became more of team Alpha's story that the, the eight, you know, all the other things are included very much. But yeah. The central kind of narrative is these eight guys from sort of nine 11 to December, 2001. And, um, yeah, I mean, you asked me about the sort of the favorite part. I mean, this, you know, so, so many, I mean, but I think, you know, it, it sort of has to be November 25th, 2001 and, and what sort of David in particular uh, kind of went through and just killing that many people um, and being in such extreme danger uh, at close quarters. I, I think very few people have sort of lived to tell that, that kind of tale. And he, you know, extremely intelligent guy, you know, he was, uh, in some ways, quite unmilitary. He'd been he'd been in the army twice. He'd been an artilleryman. He'd been an ROTC intelligence officer for a brief period, just to kind of fund his studies. Um, but he'd become an academic, Central Asia. Uh, he's he spoke fluent Uzbek and a whole load of other languages. Wow. Um, and so the eight, he was the least kind of militarily up to date. You know, because uh, four of them in the team were paramilitaries. So you know former special forces and kind yeah. of elite warrior types. David certainly wasn't that. Um, and so, you know, there was an element of every man about him, you know, like he was just this guy who was suddenly in this situation. And I think as people, I, you know, I often wonder about, you know, if I was really tested, you know, if I was on, you know, the hundredth floor of, you know, the world trade center on nine 11 and, and I had to get out and get, you know, disable people out down the stairs and keep calm and help people and do the right thing, you know, would I be able to do it or would I just 
curl up in a ball and weep, you know, under, under my desk. You know, mm-hmm. I hope I wouldn't, but I never, you know, you never quite know. And he's been tested. Yeah, and yeah. so, and also he's willing, very humble guy. And he's willing to talk about it and go into kind of the depths of his kind of psyche about how he reacted that day. You know, the tunnel vision, losing hearing time, slowing down, this like classic kind of stress reactions. Yet he still managed to function. And then, of course, how he's dealt with it the last 20 years, survivor guilt, um, PTSD, trying to piece together what happened, you know, second guessing, you know, every aspect of, of that day and, and the, the day before. Uh, and so it was just an incredible experience for me to be able to piece that together and also, speak, you know, and to do that, I also went, I was in Afghanistan a year ago and I interviewed two doctors uh, who had been treating the Al-Qaeda wounded prisoners and had seen the last moments of, of Mike Span, other Afghans who were, you know, who were uh, part of uh, the events of that day and the, and the subsequent battle. So uh, it was, yeah, it was, it was a, a, you know, a fascinating experience for me to be able to piece together something that was extremely complex from multiple points of view and kind of answer questions, which, I think some of the participants hadn't been able to answer themselves because they'd only been, you know, privy to their sort of small piece of it. Yeah. Yeah. I remember it's, it's, I'm going to have to read this thing, no doubt about it, because I remember being at SEAL Team 3, you know, and hearing like probably third party Steph Bass's experience. Because for those of you listening, we have what's called, Well, it's basically an exchange program. There's no sense in talking about like it's military names of this stuff. But what we'll do is sometimes embed a SEAL with the SAS or SBS guys, which is the British equivalents. And then you do a tour with them. You'll spend a couple of years training with them, deploying with them. You're pretty much one of them. Um, And Steph was one of these guys who was with the SBS guys who happened to get into that area. I mean, right after 9-11, if not, was already there. I can't remember. Just Um, after, yeah. Yeah. And they, uh, and I remember hearing, I mean, he got a Navy cross, you know, came out of that thing. And you don't, he, he, I think he came to team three and he kind of told the story or told it a couple of times stateside and um, hearing about it was like, holy shit, man. I mean, he was you know, surrounded, couldn't see because what I think they dropped a bomb and it was like, couldn't see anything. He was blinded. He didn't know if he was shooting in the right direction, shooting good guys back. (laughs) I said, it was just a fucking mess, but somehow came out of it alive. And, uh, and I think that was the part right where they, they dropped that bomb and it was, you know, basically, uh, danger close. We call it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 2000 pound JDAM, which, Flipped over a T fifty five tank, killed a load of Afghans, and there were five, the first five Purple Hearts of the Afghanistan War were for Green Berets, four Green Berets, and the Air Force um, Combat Controller. Yeah, That's Steph and a guy called Tony, who was an SBS corporal, who were on the other side of the fort, and the, and so they ran over, and some of the SBS guys have been caught in it as well, who were just like covered in dust and you yeah. know their ears bleeding and just a yeah. fucking mess. Yeah. yeah. But the night, the day before, the the events for which Steph, principally Steph was awarded the Navy Cross was you know, on the night on the night of the twenty fifth. So after the shit hit the fan with Mike Spam being killed and 
yeah. David being kind of trapped in the northern end of the fort. There was a 15-man rescue team that was sent in. Mark Mitchell, who was a major uh, special forces, um, he was the um, uh, like the number three in the battalion. So he was, I guess, uh, he was a battalion ops officer. So he led the 15 because he knew the he knew the fort. He lived in the fort for a few days. Yeah, uh, with with CIA team Alpha and um, and the Green Berets. Um, but eight people in that rescue team uh, were the SBS, including Steph. Right, and, that's it. Yeah, and then there was a little, and as so, most of the SBS guys were manning GPMGs on the eastern side of the fort, killing freaking scores and scores of Al Qaeda, and really kind of turning the tide of the events of that day. And there's there's some footage which sort of random Afghan took of these guys just blasting away, but Steph. <laughs> Uh, and Tony, uh, Glenn, who was a CIA medic, um, and Mitchell, and uh, Commander Fakir, who I met again last year, was a, uh, an Afghan commander. They went uh, like counterclockwise around the outside of the fort from the from the east side to the to the northwest side, and they were walking across. They were basically walking across a minefield, you know. Yeah, um, and so Steph went through that, and then Steph and Tony got onto the the northwest tower, and again killing lots of al-Qaeda through this central gateway. And then as dusk is falling, Steph basically disobeys orders to, to jump outside the fort, run around to the western side, which, which looked over the pink house, which was the last point where Mike, had, had, Mike Span had been seen. Yeah, And he gets back in the fort and crawls forward. There's like dead Afghans. He's picking AK-47s off them and, you know, killing al-Qaeda in the, um, in the in the southern compound, and then he and he, but he located Mike Spann's body. He That's could see right. That's a right. figure with like blue jeans and a black fleece, clearly not Afghan or you know Middle mm -hmm. Eastern, and and he fires rounds either side of the, of the legs of the of the body to see if there's any like flinching or any kind of reaction, and so he basically located the body. Uh, which was crucial that day and established that as far as you could possibly tell, you know, he was dead. And uh, yeah, so he was the only guy to go that far forward that day. It's an incredible story. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. I, it, God, it's been so long. And so it's kind of cool that you've brought it back to the forefront again, because I don't think mo most people, I think we were all paying attention to it at the time. Yeah. But as you mentioned, the wars just all of a sudden took off like racehorses. And before you knew it, you'd forgotten about the beginning. And so, yeah, what a great, what a great story. And, uh, and I'm sitting here going, Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So <laughs> I'm definitely going to have to read that. And everyone yeah. listening, once again, it's first cat, first casualty, the untold story of the CIA mission to avenge nine 11. And, uh, I'll be sure to read it. I appreciate you putting it together. No doubt about it. And I'm sure, like I said, we can go on for hours, but we have to do your hypothetical <laughs> survival scenario. Right. Um, I have to see if I can get out of here alive. That's right. You've, I think you'll be all right. You've, you've been in some compromising situations, so I think you'll be okay. More with the author of Bandit Country and First Casualty, Toby Harden, after the break. For this scenario... One of your anonymous but trusted sources tells you uh, that he knows about a secret island where governments are keeping a high-profile individual 
individuals who have been captured. It's it's kind of like a, a Guantanamo Bay, if you will, but nobody knows about it, right? Mm. Um, your source is taking you to uh, taking you there on a small boat, uh, and it's a remote location in the ocean. Uh, you're about 20 nautical miles, okay? Bringing in your Navy experience, 20 nautical miles from shore when your source, who is driving the boat, starts speeding and maneuvering erratically, uh, and he says that he thinks you guys are being followed. Uh, you look around, but you don't see anyone chasing you, so it's like, what is he talking about? And then, boom! The boat crashes into something, you know, big chunk of debris or maybe a big buoy or something. And the source slash your driver goes flying off and disappears into the ocean. Okay. You've managed to stay on board, but the boat's going down uh, and it's probably not going to uh, be afloat for much longer. Uh, You begin to inflate a life raft that's on board. Uh, The life raft is inflating nice and slow. Okay, it doesn't have one of those rapid fill systems on it. So first question, do you, A, just wait for the raft to inflate before you do anything else? Or B, uh, take that opportunity and grab supplies and debris from the water while you have a chance? How far away from the islands are we? I think you're still roughly 20 nautical miles. Okay, so you're not, <laughs> you're not going to be able to see it. That's for sure. Or maybe um, you can, I don't know. So I would not want to be waiting for a, a life raft to inflate, <laughs> to, that's to right. inflate in a boat that's, that's going down. So yeah. I, w- I would want to grab whatever I could and get into the water with that life raft. I'd also want to get away from the boat I don't know how big it is, but when boats think they can suck things down if you're in close That's right. proximity. Yeah, you got right answer. Um, you know, yeah, the, the the slowly inflating boat, you know, I think in this moment in time, you're certainly not going to wait on it. You know it's going to end up floating at some point, so you might right. as well just grab other stuff while that thing inflates. Or inflates, sorry. Um, so supplies will be important, and you've got to get them while you can because they might not be around for too much longer. The raft inflates and the ship goes underwater, so now you're in the life raft with some various debris you salvaged uh, from you know everything around you some salvage materials includes one wooden oar, a trash bag uh that's uh with some empty plastic and glass bottles and cans inside of it and then some stale crackers of course okay (laughs) keeping all that in mind do you a see if any of the supplies you salvage can be used for water filtration uh, because that's going to become really important to you or b dive in the water and swim to the sinking ship to try and search for more supplies. Hey, hey, yes. You know, Definitely. you, you're going to have, you know, you're really far away. You're in the middle of nowhere. And the rule of threes is probably jumping in your, in your head right now, right? Three days, uh, without water. So the clock has already started. And it's, yeah. it's one of those moments, I think people don't, either whether you know it or you don't, I'm just going to say it, you're surrounded by water, none of which you can drink, all right? So, yeah. listeners, I think you know this by now, but I'm going to say it, you don't drink salt water. Um, right. 
All right. So diving into the uh, shipwreck obviously would be dangerous. That's stupid. Like you mentioned, it creates a vacuum and you could just go down with it um, and not be able to get back up. Uh, There are ways to filter uh, seawater. And some of the items that you have salvaged may actually help with that. Um, So, for example, you can cut the bottom of any empty plastic water bottle, right? And then cut the top. Okay. So you're basically going to create a condensation device and uh so it's hard to describe but you're going to reverse the the you cut the top off you're going to reverse it to where you're putting the nozzle down inside um and then you're going to fold the bottom so that it acts like a gutter and now the condensation will be filtered. You'll get nothing but actual filtered water, and it takes time because you have to leave it in sunlight. And there's a there's a there's a couple other steps there, but you get the idea. Is you're you're creating sweat, if you will, then collecting it into the bottle, and then boom, you have drinkable water, even though you're out in the middle of nowhere. Um, it's a it's a process that you can find in any of the hundred deadly skill books, but. Uh, so now you have water and it's filtering uh, and you need to figure out what to do next. So you see a seagull next n- nearby, right? Um, which is a good sign because seagulls usually only hang out if there is land nearby. Um, so do you, A, eat the stale crackers or use one or two stale crackers to lure the bird closer so you can club it? Beat it over the <laughs> beat it over the head, just in case. <laughs> uh, eat the cracker. Or I think use I would it? eat the crackers because I think it'd be pretty hard to kill a seagull. And I, I don't know. I've never eaten seagull, but I'm not sure how much good kind of meat and stuff is in there. It, it would be raw. Uh, I would be feeling okay about the water because that's the, that's the number one yeah um I, I wouldn't be wanting to eat the crackers until i absolutely had to but i also would just think about the energy you'd expend like trying to kill this thing and yeah. you know what if it like took an eye out or kind of you know they can be pretty vicious birds so yeah i don't think i would try and kill the seagull yeah i mean i think you've got some good reasoning going on there um for this scenario we're saying yeah lure it in and kill it um, mainly salt crackers that also kind of contradicts uh, hydration. Right? Yeah, you you kind of you, you need some electrolytes, and salt is definitely one. But um, in this situation, uh, rule of threes: so three days without water, three weeks without food, and you don't know how long you're going to be there, and you have an opportunity to get some some meat, some protein. So for this scenario, uh, we're saying yeah, use a cracker to lure it in and see if you can club it over the head, break its neck, whatever. Or all okay. you got to do is injure the damn thing, and once it's in the water, then you own it. Um, yeah. And you can just drown it. Yeah. Okay. That's signs of a psychopath, so we won't go there. All right. <laughs> uh, a little. Uh, yeah, it's a little bit of a tricky question, but you get the point. Um, yeah. The odds of successfully clubbing a bird are low, as you mentioned. <laughs> but, <laughs> but you succeed. You okay. now have a dead bird. Uh, and being that it's just after Thanksgiving, kind of goes with it. Uh, so which you can devour if you're hungry enough <laughs> or better yet, the bird now leads to 
a great sushi meal, okay? So bird leads to fish, and that is kind of the goal here. So, But as you club the bird, it falls into the water, and it's only about 10 feet from your raft, okay? So, yeah. A, do you give up on the bird, eat a cracker, and assess your next steps? <laughs> or B, go ahead and dive in and get the bird and, and let that bird work for you? Well, 10 feet. It's 10 feet away. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd have to look at the sea conditions and stuff because if there was any risk of jumping in and uh, losing the raft, I wouldn't do it. But a 10, 10 feet away, um, I would think that I could hang on to the raft and just kind of slip into the water and kind of just swim over there with the raft and, and get the bird. So I, I would go for the bird as long as I could be sure that I wasn't going to lose the raft. Yeah, there you go. Dive in, get the bird. You know, you already worked hard enough to get it to where right. it's in the water. Taking those next extra steps doesn't, I mean, heck yeah, do it. Um, and yet, once again, you can argue some of, we put these these answers pretty close together, right and wrong, because, well, it leads to great discussions, but, and, right. and your reasoning is is spot on, so. You go ahead and you get the you get the bird and quickly get back onto your little uh, life raft. Um, so next, do you a enjoy some time off the raft and swim around and uh, cool down a little bit while you have the opportunity and you've realized well the sea state's good and I might as well just sit in the water and you know take advantage of my little uh, forced vacation or b uh, clang some glass bottles together from the debris in your bag. Uh, to try and uh, get some attention. What do you think? Uh, the second. I wouldn't want to be swimming around. I'd, want, I'd be wanting to get back into that raft. Um, yeah. I would yeah. presume that the guy, the driver, the source, uh, you know, maybe somebody would have known he was there. You know, there might be somebody looking and, and early on, yeah, I'd be wanting to make a little bit of noise. Yeah. Attract some attention. You know, clanging and banging glass or metal objects together can be worthwhile method of exploring if there's any sharks or predators nearby. Um, you grab your clubbed bird and you're almost back to the raft and a shark suddenly appears. So maybe they are attracted to uh, clanging <laughs> and noises. Who the hell knows? Um, so are you going to go into swimming mode or are you going to just stay vertical in the water? vertical in the water yeah yeah i think what we do know about sharks is that they're looking up and then we are nothing but silhouettes especially when yeah. the sun's up right so that silhouette a horizontal body in the water and the silhouette tends to look like the kind of predator that they want to go after whether it's seals or sea lions that kind of thing and then of course swimming is just you're flailing so you look injured already yeah uh but yeah, keeping your body vertical, which makes you a smaller target, you know, turns you into a black spot up there and remaining calm, you know. And once again, yeah, we don't know. Sometimes these things work. Sometimes they don't. We will never be able to get inside the mind of a shark. But it is uh, things that people say will work. Uh, so floating, swimming horizontally obviously makes you a bigger target and makes, them, makes the shark think you're something that you're not. Um, so the shark is getting closer. So do you A... Donkey Kong style hammer fist the shark in the fin 
<laughs> or B, just do a hard or as hard as you can throw a punch in the water to its nose. This is turning into a pretty bad day. Um, <laughs> yeah, it started out okay. I mean, the, uh, definitely the nose. Yeah, they say that nose is super sensitive, right? It's like the housing for radar, and it's not really a nose. It's like just the front, that front yeah. area. Just like humans, you know, anytime you mess with anybody's ability to breathe, it tends to make them to not want to be an aggressor any longer, right? So if you start to choke someone out, they panic and just don't want to be part of the situation any longer. With a shark, they have gills. They're a fish. And so if you can, if it gets getting close enough or it's even got a hold of you, Getting your hands inside those gills and trying to rip them um, certainly can uh, work to your advantage as well. Um, so you punch it in the in the in the the front portion. We'll call yeah. a nose, um, which scares the beast off. Okay, and you make it back to your raft. All right, and you can see some more. Uh, you can see the gulls in the distance. You know, seagulls. Uh, do you a paddle towards the seagulls or b paddle away from them seeing seagulls out in the distance yeah yeah i think i would paddle towards the sea seagulls yeah. because there might be something you could eat that's in the water something you can eat or there could be land i mean who, who yeah. knows you know but yeah where you see a bunch of them or you know if you're in uh, the northeast uh, it could be just one big junkyard or a yeah. big dump <laughs> where all the trash is at um either way go towards the seagulls um and after you do this you know extremely uh, uh arduous paddle uh you make it to a small island uh. huh. so do you a take a nap on the beach and get some energy back or b create a large sos letters in the sand with rocks logs or anything you can find <laughs> uh certainly be yeah yeah no you... it's, it's not a time for relaxing you know you need that's to get right out of there. and while you've got the uh, energy you want to you want to get that sos up as soon as possible so yeah no time for resting uh so now it's approaching dark okay it's almost nighttime last question do you a gather dry materials to start a fire and rest by the fire or b gather your dry materials and start many fires uh, maybe in the pattern or in an SOS type letter, lettering, you know what I mean? Getting, mm. getting, getting creative or is it just create one big fire? I think just one big fire. Yeah. Um, that's it. I mean, little fires can go out and you don't want to waste your material. A larger fire can see, be seen from further away. So yeah, I'd go for one big fire. Yeah, they, I mean, heck, if you have the opportunity to light an entire tree on fire, you know, that's definitely a, a great method. It really depends on what resources you have on this little island. But uh, you are correct, and congratulations, you have survived this podcast. <laughs> um, I'm relieved. Yeah, no, and you know, this is a brand. This definitely is one of our brand new scenarios, and uh, kind of going through that maritime survivability piece. And we figure we'd yeah. throw it at a veteran Navy guy to get it started. So, good job on that one. Yeah, I'm gonna um, have to go and look up uh, the um, Seagull Cookbook. See that's what, it. Yeah. yeah. See what, how I wonder. I'm sure it tastes like chicken, right? Everything tastes like chicken. Yeah. Salty, uh, I don't think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but before we leave, uh, where can everybody find you? Find your new book. Uh, where's yeah? Tell us all about that. 
So hoping to be pretty uh, easy to find. So Toby Harden, T-O-B-Y-H-A-R-N-D-E-N.com is my website. And then at Toby Harden uh, on Twitter, uh, Toby Harden one, the number one on Instagram. So I'm constantly posting uh, this. I mean, there's some great pictures in the book, but I have hundreds and hundreds of amazing pictures from this period. So, oh, wow. uh, you know, posting those on Instagram uh, all the time. And, uh, you know, LinkedIn, I mean, I'm kind of you yeah, know, trying everywhere. to be everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I know the feeling. Um, well, Hey, I appreciate you coming on the show, Toby, and sharing your experience and, uh, helping to remember the fallen, which is I yeah. think key and no doubt that your book does the same thing. And so I know I'm going to try and get a copy of it and, uh, and, and get reading and uh i hope the listeners do do as well because it's an important piece of history that uh has you know it's kind of gone forgotten because there was so many other events going on right after that so thank you again for taking the time out of your day and coming on the podcast we appreciate it buddy thank you very much clint and uh yeah i'm honored to survive thank you oh yeah you survived and for everyone else remember keep it simple because crisis will complicate the rest and we'll see you next time can You Survive This Podcast is a production of Calvary Audio and iHeartMedia. Recorded live from a secure location here in Dallas, Texas. Produced by Brandon Morgan, Jeff Apple, and Clint Emerson. Executive produced by Keegan Rosenberger and Dana Brunetti. For Calvary Audio, I'm Clint Emerson.